Connecting more patients with doctors. The new model is bringing people back to family practice. The province expands its program to link you up with a family physician. Fears the wildfire season is about to ramp up. The reality is, is we will see new starts. The grim outlook heading into a hot, dry stretch. And a bathroom renovation nightmare. Working in the city of Vancouver is the absolute worst part of my job. A builder shares his permit fiasco. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. The province is offering new hope to the almost 900,000 British Columbians who don't have a family doctor. It's expanding its program to match patients looking for a physician with doctors who have capacity. But as Richard Zussman reports, this won't be a quick solution. When Mikhail Mulshinov needs medical care, he waits. In this case, at an urgent primary care centre hoping one day to be removed from the list of British Columbians without a family doctor. They are much more responsive to your needs. They keep track of your records. They know the history. So all of this is, makes life much easier. Making life easier is what the province is trying to do. On Wednesday, expanding the Health Connect registry. Patients register online in an attempt to link them with one of 900 family doctors or nurse practitioners NBC currently looking for patients. What we want to do is give patients a sense that they're on a list and they will be contacted when a doctor becomes available. Whether we have enough right now to say a million people get a family doctor, no, that's not the current reality, Richard, right? If that was the case, then we would have solved this problem already. Over the last year, the numbers have dropped from 980,000 people without a family doctor to 890,000 in BC. And although the registry's a start, it's not the prescription to what ails the healthcare system. Doctors will not be forced to increase the number of patients they have, and unlike other jurisdictions, they will not be forced to take on a patient in their area in need. Those decisions on a good match will be left between the physician and patient. I don't think it's healthy to force relationships upon anybody. We absolutely know that a doctor-patient relationship is based on trust. Urgent primary care centers will still be part of the health network even when registrations start ramping up. This is how they'll work. A family doctor will contact a patient directly to see if it's a good fit, but the minister wouldn't say how many people should expect to find a doctor this way or how long it may take. What the minister needs to do is provide data to British Columbians that demonstrates uh, that there's progress being made. We need to see results. The province will provide an update in November on how the registry is working and whether Molshinov and so many others looking for a family doctor finally have one. Richard Lisman, Global News, Victoria. After what is already a record-breaking wildfire season in this province, officials say the worst could still be on the way. B.C.'s forests are drier than normal, with hotter-than-average temperatures on the way. And as Krista Dow reports... The harrowing prediction comes as police announce some of the wildfires were intentionally set. There's five. A relentless parade of helicopters and skimmers working to extinguish two active fires on northern Vancouver Island. The Brown Creek Fire and the Newcastle Creek Fire now considered held and not expected to spread. They brought in the big guns, it seemed, right away, like they were on it. The fires among a series of five wildfires sparked in the Sayward area since June. 
Police now believe all were human-caused and may have been intentionally set. If anybody's intentionally setting them, um, it's that much more concerning that the, the danger to, to uh, life and property is extreme right now. Mountie is looking to speak with some quad riders near the Browning Creek fire who may have witnessed suspicious activity. The possible arson coming on the heels of what has been a record-breaking wildfire season. The B.C. Wildfire Service says more than one million hectares of earth have already been scorched. It now ranks as the third most hectares burned in any fire season in B.C. And there's plenty more fuel available due to worsening drought conditions. With little relief in the summer forecast, more wildfires are certain. What we're going to see in the next two weeks is we're going to see more potential fire on the landscape spread from the north to the south with new starts with anticipated lightning each day. Officials warning human resources will be stretched to the max. The only good news, firefighters will get some relief with the USA and Mexico sending 160 personnel and firefighters to B.C. Those resources will help support our fire suppression efforts in the north, allowing us the ability to rest some of our own staff and also allowing us the ability to have preparedness resources. Noon Friday, a campfire ban will be in effect for almost all of B.C., expected to stay in effect until October 31st. Wednesday's bleak outlook, another warning for British Columbians in what's expected to be another marathon wildfire season. Krista Dow, Global News. And meteorologist Yvonne Schell is in for us tonight for Christie with more on the heat and where the warnings are in effect. Yvonne. Yeah, the heat warnings in many areas across the province. We're seeing temperatures 5 and up to 10 degrees above the average for this time of the year. Along the north coast inland, this includes Terrace and Kitimat, up to 30 degrees, but not much of a reprieve with temperatures down to 15 as an overnight low. Similar for the northeastern corners, Fort Nelson is included within that. We'll likely see these temperatures soaring and continuing into early next week and areas and towards the Fraser Canyon, a big concern. We could get up to 35 degrees and overnight lows just down to 18, and this will take us in towards Sunday or potentially in towards our Monday as well. With it, no precipitation in the forecast. We're seeing the fire danger rating now sitting at high, extreme right across the island, and we've now started to see into the southern interior a few spotty areas up to extreme. We do have some active weather this evening, risk of thunderstorms for the northeastern corners. That coming up very shortly. Chris? All right, we'll check in later. Thanks very much, Yvonne. Supply chain fears and the damage a lengthy strike could cause are growing as BC's port strike drags into its fifth day now. Keith Baldry joins us with more on what's going on. And Keith, the federal labor minister and BC labor minister met today. Yes, BC Labor Minister Harry Baines met with his federal counterpart Seamus O'Regan. 30-minute face-to-face meeting in Vancouver today. Uh, my sources tell me O'Regan wanted to draw on Baines's decades-long experience in the union movement. He's been through a number of strikes. A government conti- the federal government continues to send out no signals that it's prepared to intervene here, despite increasing calls for the government to reconvene Parliament and have yeah. some sort of back-to-work legislation. Today, Alberta becoming the second government now calling on Ottawa to get involved. Also, Saskatchewan. Look for other provinces to make similar calls on Ottawa. Uh, but again, there seems to be a reluctance, no guarantee the Conservatives would back a back-to-work bill. Uh, so again, this seems to be pushed until at least next week in terms of whether back-to-work legislation is in the cards. The employer today reiterated its offer to send the whole thing to a voluntary arbitration process, get the ports back up and running, and send it to an arbitration process. No word from the union whether they accept that. So tomorrow, day six, we should cross the $4 billion threshold in the amount of cargo that's been disrupted since this strike began. Again, no end in sight. All right, thanks for that, Keith.
A Merritt City Councilor has been identified as the victim of an apparent hit and run on Highway 16 near the BC Alberta border. In an online statement, the City of Merritt says Claire Newman was traveling to see family when she was struck and killed. Vilmont RCMP say when they arrived at the scene just after midnight, they found a Nissan Frontier pickup unlocked and running with a dog inside, but no other vehicle. Newman's body was found nearby in a ditch. A headlight recovered from the scene was from a 2016 to 2018 gray Jeep Cherokee. Police want to speak with the driver of that vehicle. A sentencing hearing got underway today for the man who killed one person and sent six others to hospital in a knife attack in North Vancouver. Troy Charles is live outside the New West Courthouse with more on the guilty plea that victims and their families were hoping for earlier and what they said in court today. Yes, Chris, some of the victims and their families immediately brought to tears at the sight of 30-year-old Yannick Bendago entering the courtroom here on Wednesday. And those tears continued in the gallery throughout the day as victims recounted the horrific stabbing spree outside the Lynn Valley Public Library. First, we heard from a mother and father who lost their daughter in the attack. And while the mother was speaking, the father was turned around, staring at the back of the courtroom, looking at Bendago, and the accused kept his eyes to the ground. They described their daughter, the lone life lost in this tragedy, as fearless and gentle, saying her death has left them with no home, only left to merely exist. A second victim explained how she lost her left eye in the attack. She was nearby waiting for her daughter's band class to end when her life changed forever. She said, fear, guilt, anger and depression are all consuming of my daily life. Used to tell my kids to go out into the world and don't fear people no matter what walk of life they're from. I can no longer live by what I once preached. I am scared. Another young victim said she was walking towards the library when she saw people running. She didn't recognize the gravity of the situation until Bendago was charging at her with a knife. She was pushed into a fence, knocked down and stabbed repeatedly. She said she never imagined the thought that I'm dying would cross my mind at 22 or that I would ever face a threat in my small, quiet community of Lynn Valley. And you could still, even two years after the facts, two years and a half then, after the facts, it's still a profound impact on everyone, even to this day. And it's going to take some time for the community to heal, for people to heal. And it's, it's, it's hard. More victim impact statements are expected Thursday and possibly into Friday. Bendago's already pled guilty to second-degree murder, which brings with it an automatic life sentence. It will now be up for the judge to decide when he will be eligible for parole, which could be as little as 10 years or as long as 25. Chris, back to you. Powerful stuff today. Thanks very much, Troy. Well, the inquest into the 2020 death of homeless advocate Barry Schantz today heard from officers who responded to a call from Schantz's Lytton home. As Grace Key reports, much of today's testimony focused on the officer's decision to call for backup after Schantz fired a round from his shotgun. Soon after arriving at Barry Schantz's home near Lytton, two initial responding officers say Schantz stuck his head out of a second-floor window and fired his shotgun. At the coroner's inquest, they say the barrel was pointed in the direction, but not directly at them. To me, it looked like up and to the left, so offline, adding it was nerve-wracking. He had the high ground. You don't know if he was going to take another shot. The officers were shown photos of a hole from the shotgun through the eaves. Neither thought it hit the house. Yes, there was a discharge of a warning shot, 
but the fact that it was it was expressed that he'd fired at officers then led i feel to the very paramilitary response that then came um, that then certainly didn't de-escalate the situation in January 2020, police shot and killed 63-year-old Shantz when he came out of his home with a shotgun. His partner called 911 saying he was suicidal and had a weapon. The partner's brother testified saying he called Barry when he heard about the standoff. Murdoch McIntyre asked Barry, what are you doing? Are you going to shoot yourself? Barry replied, there is no dignity in killing yourself. Barry told him he was going to walk out the front door at a quarter after two with a shotgun in his hand. And I said, you can't do that. They are going to put a hole in you. That's suicide. An emergency response and crisis negotiation team were called in for the six-hour standoff. Barry's sister says a mental health professional was never brought in to de-escalate the situation. As for the bullet hole outside the window, the photo was taken weeks after the shooting. The sister's attorney says it was Barry's partner who told the independent investigations office about it. The IAO's job is to investigate the facts and to, to take the officer's word that Barry fired towards them to justify the parliamentary response when there's a clear bullet hole directly above that window um, needed to be corrected and the IIO at the time refused to correct it. On Thursday, the crisis negotiator and officer who took the fatal shot will be among the witnesses. Grace Key, Global News. BC's police watchdog says there are reasonable grounds for criminal charges in the case of an off-duty police officer wrongly mauled and badly injured by a police dog. It was a case of mistaken identity. Catherine Urquhart has the details and a warning. Some of the images in this story are disturbing. Two years ago, Inspector Manjinder Singh Kayla was off duty at his home when he was mauled by a police dog. That dog with the RCMP's Lower Mainland Integrated Police Dog Service a civil suit was filed in the case. Now, the Independent Investigations Office of BC has sent a report to the BC Prosecution Service for consideration of criminal charges. In 20 years of practicing law, I have never seen a case with a story like this before. It is civil and potentially criminal, and it involves all police officers. It was May 2021 when Kayla was bitten. He was outside his Surrey home when he heard a crash, saw a pickup on his neighbor's lawn and two people running. The suit says several officers and an off-leash service dog were in pursuit. The civil suit claims Kayla yelled several times, I'm not involved, it wasn't me. And the plaintiff's next awareness was of a police officer on top of him. Then the plaintiff heard an officer issue a command to the German shepherd and in direct response to which the dog bit and mauled the plaintiff's left leg and calf. It's his evidence that the police dog showed no interest in him. It appeared to him to be pursuing the airborne scent of the actual suspect elsewhere and away from him. A recently filed statement of defense claims the officers involved had reasonable grounds to believe and did believe that the plaintiff was the male suspect, noting he was wearing dark clothing that matched the description of the male suspect and moving away from the police despite their command. It also states the male suspect was believed to be potentially armed with a firearm. The safest way to apprehend him was to knock him to the ground, giving the police dog a chance to deploy. Now there's a potential criminal case. Can criminal cases impact civil cases? The information that we get in the criminal case tells us a lot about 
what happened that day and is a really good, clean, clear picture before the civil case starts. A decision on possible criminal charges could take months. This as Kayla continues to recover from the unusual assault. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Kamloops police are investigating after two suspicious packages were found in the same neighborhood and one of them turned out to be a pipe bomb. On Monday, police recovered and removed the pipe bomb from the 900 block of Greystone Avenue. A safety perimeter was established and the homemade explosive device was removed safely. And then on Tuesday, a second suspicious package was found in the 2100 block of Sifton Avenue, just a few blocks away from the earlier scene. The area was closed while the explosive device unit traveled from Vancouver to assess the danger. Red tape cripples the renovation industry. It's the system. The system is broken. A local builder lays out all the hoops he has to jump through just to get a simple bathroom project finished. Spending thousands for permits before he even starts the work. That's next on the News Hour. Pod of orcas gets some unwelcome attention. Why the guy in the boat is under investigation. Coming up. And later in sports, remember Nathan Rourke? The former Lions superstar quarterback is back home and training for his big shot at a starting job in the NFL. Right now, though, what was supposed to be a simple powder room renovation has turned into the last straw for a Vancouver home builder. He says he's had enough when it comes to remodeling red tape at City Hall. As Aaron MacArthur reports, even some city councillors are frustrated with the bureaucracy. Avi Barzilai is getting his van ready for another day on the job site. But some of what he wants to get done today won't be possible. The city of Vancouver standing in his way. Working in the city of Vancouver is the absolute worst part of my job. One of Barzilai's current projects is a renovation job on a small bathroom. It's a powder room. It's a toilet and a sink. Fed up with the red tape, Barzilai scorched the city's process on Twitter. In order to renovate the bathroom, he was asked to provide a survey plan, an energy advisor, a hazardous materials report. He will need an arborist and a structural engineer to sign off. Plus full drawings of the home and all the permits. The cost so far, just under nine grand. So there's always a reason, a rationale for these things, but the city takes it to the nth degree. In an email, the city says much of what Barzilai says he was asked to provide isn't actually necessary, and staff are happy to work with the builder and the homeowner. City councillors are equally as frustrated with the pace of changes in permitting. The majority on council, ABC was elected on promises of cutting red tape. So we've also set some 3331 permitting uh, target timelines. And what that is doing is that's going to put targets for staff to meet in terms of permit delivery. Despite City Council's ambition on this file, builders say it's a way different situation on the ground, where permitting can take sometimes longer than the construction itself. The goal here should not be to find ways to say no. The goal here should be to find ways to say yes and try to expedite things in as, as effective, timely, and efficient manner possible. Barzilai will get the bathroom reno done eventually, but he wonders how much red tape he will have to wade through at City Hall to start his next project. Aaron MacArthur, Global News.
Like you saw in the report, the city of Vancouver says it's working hard to improve permitting and reduce wait times. They say those efforts include streamlining engineering review requirements, which includes removing 20% of conditions. Another is removing 17 design and administrative requirements so housing can be built faster. And there's also a proposal to lump rainwater management plans together with plumbing permits so that builders can get started more quickly. If approved, that would come into effect January 1st. Six businesses are confirmed lost in a downtown Vernon fire that's being treated as suspicious. The fire broke out early Tuesday on 30th Street. Among the businesses lost are a metaphysical shop, restaurant, boutique and salon. At least one business owner says she didn't have insurance. Police say the cause of the fire as well as the ignition point are still being investigated. Just ahead, bonus money in your bank account. The government starts delivering its so-called grocery rebate to help cope with inflation. And tips that make you sick. How Lyme disease is getting worse with climate change. Canadians are feeling a little more optimistic when it comes to the economic outlook in this country. Just a little. A new poll from Research Co. shows 41% of Canadians feel the conditions are very good or good. That's 6% higher than at the start of this year. However, 56% still feel it's bad or very bad. When it comes to the next six months, 16% of Canadians feel the economy will improve. Nearly half think it'll remain about the same and 32% feel it will get worse. Well, the cost of everything, no doubt having an impact on those poll numbers. Today, though, a little help. The rollout of the so-called grocery rebate. About 11 million lower-income Canadians will get that one-time payment, which is essentially a GST top-up. But for many families, it's just a Band-Aid solution. Turia Isri reports. Millions of Canadians are receiving a cash injection to offset record food prices. I'll take whatever they, they, they give. Okay. It's, it, it, it's very expensive to... Uh... Today's world. Families with children are getting between $387 and $628. Single Canadians are receiving $234, while seniors are getting $225. This is $50, and this is just chips, um, fruits, and bread. The money doesn't have to go towards buying groceries. It can be spent on anything. But for this mother, the rebate barely covers her monthly bill for formula and diapers. Every week and a half, at least I'm spending about $140, $120. And that's not touching groceries. The average family is spending roughly $1,000 more this year than last on food. For the people who need it the most, it's going to make a difference. Is it going to cover everything? No. And we have to be honest about that. Ottawa insists it needs to strike a balance to avoid fueling inflation. Some Canadians believe the rebate is the wrong approach. They want the government to fight price gouging at the grocery store instead. Because there are so few uh, major chains, it is reducing competition, which doesn't provide much incentive for people to um, you know, keep their prices very low. I mean, we only Canadians who have filed their taxes will qualify for the so-called grocery rebate. Ottawa plans to introduce automatic filing so that vulnerable Canadians don't miss out on their benefits. But advocates insist the best way for the government to reduce poverty is by investing in housing. 
Taria Isri, Global News, Ottawa. Coming up, organized crime adopts a new kind of currency. It's just a really crafty way to launder money. Why trading cards like Pokemon and others are hotter than ever. Also ahead, how a proposed new law could better protect first responders who come under fire. A lower mainland MP says he's trying to close a loophole in the criminal code to better protect first responders. Peter Julian is touting his private member's bill that would mean anyone who kills a first responder in the line of duty would be automatically charged with first-degree murder. Currently, that distinction only applies to police officers. His bill would also create a new offense of assaulting a paramedic or firefighter and increases maximum penalties for assaults against first responders. The work that our first responders do is day in, day out. It's in the toughest of times is when our folks shine the brightest. Uh, and in those times are times that are typically very difficult for a lot of citizens. At times, their reactions to some of the events that they find themselves can be troubling and put our workers at risk. I have not had a single member of parliament say that they're opposed to it. Uh, that is a good sign. Uh, but it's too early to, to see whether it would get the unanimous consent that would allow rapid passage. The bill passed first reading in mid-June. Private members' bills rarely become law. Well, criminals are finding a new way to make fast cash and go undetected. Edmonton police say trading cards like Pokemon are being used as a new kind of currency. In December, Rolling Tails pop culture was the target of a robbery. The thief went for collectible cards, Pokemon and Magic the Gathering. So they came in, just went behind the counter and just kind of straight armed all of the card product into a big duffel bag on the floor. At that time, a number of similar stores in Edmonton were targeted. Edmonton police say criminals are using collectible cards as currency. You sell them quick because there's, there's no need to hold on to them. And the market does fluctuate quite a bit too. In April, police searched two homes and seized more than $400,000 worth of illegal drugs and nearly 60,000 collectible cards worth $34,000. Not really a great haul when you get that many cards, like you're almost at 50 cents a card there. So either the good stuff had already been moved, um, which is probably likely, and then everything that was left over was fairly common. Criminologist Dan Jones says using collectible cards as a currency for organized crime is crafty. You're not putting it in a bank where someone has to notify FinTrack. You're not sitting with a bunch of cash where the, you know, I would assume that these, these individuals are hoping the police aren't catching on to this. So when they do search warrants, they're not looking for Pokemon cards. Jones says this is a growing trend here and in other countries like Australia and England. The amount of money that people are willing to pay for these things is, is a significant amount of money. So you can hide tens and twenties and hundreds of thousands of dollars in these cards. Jay Bardilla has done what he can to up security, but he knows he's still at risk for as long as this trend continues. It's very easy for someone to take a lot of product in a very short period of time and very efficiently. Sarah Comedina, Global News. As hotter, drier summers become the norm in Canada, the risk of tick-borne illnesses goes up. Ticks can carry Lyme disease, which is spread to humans through their bite. More serious symptoms of Lyme include arthritis, facial paralysis, heart issues, and meningitis. Eastern Canada, and specifically Nova Scotia, see the most ticks carrying Lyme disease-causing bacteria. 
And a researcher at UBC says the BC tick population has remained static despite people thinking they are seeing more. Still, you do need to be aware of your surroundings. We know that uh, the ticks present in BC, not many, few ticks carry Lyme disease bacteria, which is a serious disease, so people should be very cautious. Researchers recommend you wear long sleeves, tuck your pants into your socks, and wear light-colored clothing that makes it easier to see ticks. Bug spray with DEET is also helpful. People are also urged to check themselves, their children, and pets for ticks after spending any time in the woods or long grass. Well, there are new guidelines for patients seeking medically assisted dying who want to be organ donors that could let them choose who gets their organs. Some, some experts, though, say the new recommendations need more work. Global's Sean Preville explains. As access to medical assistance in dying grows, new questions are emerging about whether Canadians can choose who would get one of their organs once they're gone. New recommendations released last month aim to help organizations and transplant programs craft new policies on the challenging requests. Patients kept insisting. They're like, you know, I want some good to come out of my death. To discuss directed organ donation, a person needs to be eligible for medically assisted death first and their recipient, the guidelines say, should be someone they know. But one of the biggest questions is whether a person chosen by an organ donor should trump someone on the waiting list in greater need or vice versa. Bioethicist Udo Schuklang says not letting potential donors choose their recipients could discourage assisted dying patients from donating at all. He says getting organs to someone who needs it is what matters most. Ultimately, also fewer people will be on that waiting list. It will be a shorter waiting list by virtue of that. Others, including Dr. Kim Weeb, who helped write the recommendations, have a different view. The person in highest need of the organ will be prioritized, and patients have to agree that the donation will be unconditional and that we'll work towards, you know, the directed donation, but that it will, it will go to the patient in highest need. Federal data shows less than 25% of Canadians are registered organ donors. One donor could save up to eight lives. Nearly 40% of those removed from the waitlist last year died while waiting. Canadian Transplant Society President James Breckenridge says being able to choose who an organ goes to could help make donation more meaningful. You know, perhaps you'd like to give your organ to your wife or your daughter or your kidney or for somebody to that to a person that is in real need that you know or is a part of the family might tip the scale for that person to become an organ donor. A meaningful moment for Canadians as they live out their final days. Sean Preble, Global News. Kids Help Phone is announcing a new partnership to expand its mental health services using artificial intelligence. The organization is partnering with the Vector Institute to use natural language processing technology. At this point, the technology is still in development and hasn't been widely rolled out. Kids Help Phone says the technology will be used to help identify a caller's specific needs. When children call, text, or connect through the website, the AI technology can scan the conversation and flag any words that will help the staff direct care. Just ahead, a little home cooking from Ukrainian refugees. We never dream to live in Canada. The new Kelowna business keeping its head chef and a lot of customers happy. And the search for a boater caught on camera getting way too close to a pot of orcas off the west coast.
Vancouver Island photographer trying to snap a shot of a baby orca instead caught some egregious and dangerous behavior. TJ Campbell says he was standing on the shore near Royston on Monday night when he saw a boater drive straight into the middle of where the orcas were swimming. He says the boater took out his fishing rod and extended it toward them while appearing to take some selfies. Campbell says it went on for about 20 minutes and the whales were visibly bothered by the incident. It's maddening to watch something like that. I mean, we all would love to be close to them. We all want to, you know, we all, as a photographer, I want to get that great shot that everybody oozes and awes over, but not at the expense of the animal, right? So it's, it's really hard to watch stuff like that happening. TJ Campbell says he hopes the boater turns himself into the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, which has confirmed to us that it is looking into this incident. Despite that bad behavior by the boater, TJ Campbell still got some amazing mm -hmm. shots of those workers, no doubt about it. Okay, there's Yvonne with a look ahead to the weather forecast. And yeah, it's a hot one out there. Yeah, it's been hot and hazy. We'll see another one for tomorrow. We're still tracking uh, the potential for some record-breaking heat. We've had some daily temperature records uh, fall through the day today, but there's the tower cam and what it looks like outdoors. We're sitting at 23 degrees, and we've got that southwesterly wind closer to 11 kilometers per hour. Unofficial numbers, but Comox, 30.3, the old record of 30 degrees was set all the way back in 1922. Fort Nelson getting up to 31.7, old record back in 1998. Fort St. John right now tying an old record of 27.2 set back in 1961. A few other spots and highs across the province today, Lytton up to 34 degrees, Prince George soaring at 27. The active weather at this hour, we've got some lightning strikes and we've had some thunderstorms roll across the region. For the peace, we still have that severe thunderstorm warning. Watches for Fort Nelson extending towards the south as well. This should dissipate, but there's still some instability once again for tomorrow. A few other areas to note, we've got that smoky sky bulletin for the northeastern corners and we touched upon it at the top of the hour with the heat warning along the north coast inland and for the Fraser Canyon we'll see those temperatures daytime highs 30 to 35 degrees continuing into early next week we'll likely see the peak of the temperature on Sunday potentially in towards Monday and then a bit of a reprieve for areas like Lytton on Tuesday fire danger rating high to extreme so please be very diligent and now in towards the interior we are seeing a few spotty areas popping up as extreme so the northeastern corners there's that instability with the risk of thunderstorms central and the southeastern corners of the province included within that inland for the island Port Alberni once again tomorrow up to 34 degrees away from the water with the human x we're going to feel closer to 36 tomorrow that'll be the peak one of the hottest days saturday sunday so far still warm sunny 23 and up to 24 degrees tonight's when the window is a great shot this was captured this morning in poco for michael right. well done michael well done yvonne thank you squire is here now and squire is uh the return of nathan rourke sort of well he's here he's just not going to play for the bc lions he plays for a different type of cat now. He's a Jaguar. <laughs> he of course played uh, U.S. college football, but after spending time in the CFL, he is learning how being an NFL quarterback is different. Yeah, it's definitely smaller, so there's a little bit more of an emphasis on timing and footwork and being um, early rather than late. Bork is working out with his uh, personal coach to get ready for NFL training camp, which starts later this month. Also coming up, ready to cook. The Ukrainian kitchen serving up home country fare and nourishing new arrivals in Canada.
Squire, take it away. All right, here we go. Nathan Rourke has gone from being a CFL star to just one of the guys behind Jacksonville star quarterback Trevor Lawrence. Now, Rourke knew that going into Jacksonville, and his first goal is to impress the Jags coaches enough to make him the number two guy rather than the number three guy with the Jaguars. But that means a lot of work this summer getting ready for training camp, which starts later this month, and he's doing a lot of it back here in Vancouver working with his old coach, Rob Williams. Hey. So, how was minicamp? It was great. It was great. It was great to be able to be out there, learn a little bit this offseason. It was great to be able to go down early, uh, earlier than the rest of the rookies, so I kind of felt like I had a head start and uh, be able to help them along as they got there, and uh, it's been fun to try to figure out things. Call it the ironing out of football wrinkles for a 25-year-old rookie NFL quarterback preparing for his first ever main camp south of the border. The learning curve is a steep one, especially when you go from slinging it in the CFL to tossing it in the NFL. I think the, the biggest thing is I've had to take something off of the ball. I haven't been able to throw it as hard as I can. So when, when we've been training with Rob this offseason, we've been really focusing on, you know, throwing it at, you know, maybe 90% rather than 100. Um, you know, with one of the last couple of years with the CFO, when I just started working with Rob, I had this new velocity that I wasn't used to, and I was able to kind of just go out there and just kind of rip it. And, and because of the size of the field and, you know, the targets and where everyone is, I think you kind of get away with it. But when guys are a little bit closer, um, you know, I had a bunch of uh, instances this, this past spring where, you know, maybe throwing it 100% isn't the best thing for the completion of the play, right? So uh, having to adjust to that and, and, you know, obviously the red zone is a different deal as well. So having to adjust to those type of throws as well. Hi, good morning, man. Rourke's under no illusion where he fits on the Jags' depth chart. Every meeting, every game plan is centered around Trevor Lawrence. It's up to Rourke to prove that he's capable of filling in for Lawrence if and when he's needed. And that'll happen for Rourke come the exhibition season. It's been fun. It's been it's been really fun. I've been really enjoying it. I mean, it's been challenging for sure. Um, I think, I, I, I you know, when I made the decision, I think a lot of people were like, oh, he's just, you know, going to chase the money and whatnot. But I don't think people understood how difficult it is to move organizations to do this, to be, you know, really, you know, a starter in a position where you're treated a certain way and then go down to the bottom rung again and start over. Like, that's not... Not an easy feat, and it was definitely diff difficult this spring, and I think it will continue to be difficult, but I think that is what makes the journey so meaningful, and uh, that's what I'm looking forward to, to working towards uh, moving back up that rung uh, this, this fall. Well, the Vancouver Whitecaps got rather embarrassed in Kansas City last Saturday, losing 3-0, but winning on the road is a rare occurrence for the Whitecaps. It's only happened once in the last year, so... It's good news for them that their next three home games will be, well, their next three games are at home. That's what makes sense. Anyway, it'll start Saturday against Seattle at BC Place Stadium. What's even better is the Whitecaps are healthier this Saturday. They have striker Brian White coming back, defender Tristan Blackman, and midfielder Russell Tybert. All three are ready to go again. Yeah, that, I would say I'm very, very, very happy. Uh, first of all, for them, because it means that they, they're over their injury so, and, and they're feeling good. And also, in a different way, they are three leaders of the group. So they're guys that uh, they make feel their presence not only as a player, but also as a man in the locker room, in the, in the, in the dressing room, on the pitch. And so I think it's a huge help to, to have them back. I have to say I've always felt bad for Milos Ronic. He had bad timing, through no fault of his own, just 
born at the wrong time in tennis history because when Milos was at his best, so were Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal and Andy Murray. It was like the four horsemen of the apocalypse armed with tennis rackets. Ronich was never as great as they were. And then, of course, came numerous injuries. And now at the age of 32, Milos Ronich is trying to remind people of who he was and who he is at Wimbledon. And today, he did win for the first time on the grass at Wimbledon since 2019. It was taking on Dennis Novak. They split the first two sets, but Ronich was down 5-3 in the tiebreaker in the third set, but came back to win it. And he would win this in four sets. So Milos Ronich moves on to round number two at Wimbledon. Good for him. And Denis Shapovalov was also a winner today, taking on Radu Albot. This match was delayed by rain. Uh, Shapovalov lost the first set, but he won the next three. Should mention, Rebecca Marino was playing today. She lost the first set, was up 4-2 in the second set. And again, they had to suspend play, and they'll try to finish it up tomorrow. But Shapovalov and Ronich were winners today. There you go. Good to see him do well. Thanks, Squire. Up next, Ukrainian refugees get a soul-satisfying taste of home. Stay with us. Pavel Kuramali is working the night shift tonight, standing by with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11. Kamal? Yes, yeah, stepping in for Jordan. So TransLink looking for a new way to prevent large gatherings at the Main Street Science World SkyTrain station, and it involves the use of sound. TransLink tested a device which emits high-frequency noise to prevent what it calls disorderly conduct at station entrances. Obviously, not everyone is a fan, so we have the reaction and the rollout at Global News at 11. Sounds good. Thanks very much, Kamal. It's been more than a year since Russia invaded Ukraine and thousands of displaced Ukrainians came to Canada, many settling in the Okanagan. Now, there isn't much that's familiar to them here, so food helps them feel closer to home. And as Sydney Morton shows us, they want to share it with their new neighbors. cabbage rolls and borscht are what many of us think of when it comes to Ukrainian food. However, that's just three of the many delicacies Tatiana Kopet sells in her new store, ready to cook. We have uh, different types of pierogi. We produce sausage with mozzarella, pork, chicken, uh, pie. This Ukrainian style pie, something between uh, pie and quiche. We produce use uh, crepes with uh, cottage cheese uh, and uh, something new for Canadian people. This is uh, cheese pancakes. Tatiana and her family were forced to leave their home in Kyiv during the Russian invasion last year. Very hard uh, because we never dream live in Canada. Our life uh, was in Kyiv incredible. Our country was very developed the last few years. Now she has created a little piece of Ukraine here at her shop in Kelowna, where she's hired other Ukrainians looking for work. It's here where the women can speak their language, listen to Ukrainian music, all the while earning a wage to build their new lives in Canada. And they have big plans for the business. I hope we will have a 
client like uh, restaurant, maybe winery, maybe schools for children. While they build up their clients' lists, they will continue preparing Ukrainian meals that are ready to be cooked in your home. Sydney Morton, Global News, Kelowna. Who's hungry? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, cannot wait to visit that place. Yeah. Uh, okay, quick uh, check on the weather before we go. Now that we're over the hump, Yvonne? Yeah, hot and hazy tomorrow. This likely will be the peak of the heat. It's really away from the water. Temperatures will be feeling like 36 degrees. And for the interior, it still continues in towards our Friday. And the heat warnings that are in effect along the northern half of the province of the Fraser Canyon into early next week. So be prepared. Tomorrow with the UV index, we'll be sitting closer to 8 as well. It's going to be nice. Yikes. Just so happens. Someone's on vacation? I'll be enjoying it. Not around Who here. Who might that be? <laughs> Chris Gaylis. I'm not giving anything away. <laughs> yeah. It's a staycation, though. That's Who can right. afford to travel these days? Exactly. Well, are you, are you going to go to Langley this year? Yeah. Oh, you know, we could golf out there. That's very good. The traffic. See though. the bandits. Have a great <laughs> night, everybody. Good night, Thanks all. Thanks for watching. <laughs>